A life in vain. My looks, talents faded, like these cherry blossoms paling in the endless rains that I gaze out upon, alone, as I embrace the void. void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the news story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 126 of Embrace the Void, where I am at home in the me that is on this adventure. I'm your host, Aaron, and this week we're going more in-depth with our reoccurring topic of good versus slightly less good kinds of mindfulness. Um, These can always be sort of tricky distinctions to make, um, but for people's well-being, I think it's important that we try to make them. So let's get mindful. My guest this week is Ron Purser, co-host of the Mindful Cranks podcast and author of Mick Mindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality. Ron, would you like to say hi to the void? Uh, hello out there in the uh, void land. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me. I'm really happy to talk about this. The sort of intersection of mindfulness and capitalism is something that um, I have a lot of concern about personally. So to get us started, I thought we could just do a little bit of like laying out of a few basics since we're dealing with some potentially vague terms here. Do you want to define how you see mindfulness? What does that what does that idea mean for you first? Um yeah, sure. I, I'll try it, but you know, now as, I you know as best you can with such a concept. It's you know, it's almost like asking how do you define a, a Rorschach ink plot? Uh because mm-hmm. mindfulness is just a word that's bandied around so much now uh, that it's it's pretty vague. It's it's elastic. Uh, you know, even if you go mm-hmm. to Buddhist sources, uh, there's no one monolithic Buddhist kind of understanding of mindfulness either. You know, mm-hmm. you could go to you know everyone talks about the Satipatthana Sutra, which is one of the root root texts on mindfulness in the early Pali Canon, but you know, you could go to other uh, teachers like Sankampa, Ikoda uh, Longchenpa, the Tibetan traditions, uh, Santi Deva, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on and on. So there's there's really not a uh, you could say a centralized definition of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, and I also think that uh, if we're talking about uh, contemporary mindfulness, uh, you know, it's interesting that that's really a modern invention in, in many ways. Uh, it, it, it kind of presents itself as not being modern, that 
it's, it's a form of Buddhist modernism where mindfulness is sort of situated within that sort of historical mm -hmm. uh, thread. And from within that kind of context, then mindfulness, as we as we hear it today in a contemporary form, it's it's a modern invention. Uh, it, it's it's touted as being derived from Buddhism, but I, I really see that more as a, a marketing ploy uh, to exploit Buddhism for its cultural cachet. And it's interesting. I read an article just a couple months ago by. Uh, Thupten Jimpa, who is a former Tibetan monk, he, he derobed about four or five years ago, but he he's a Buddhist scholar, Cambridge. He's been the primary translator for the Dalai Lama over the over you know the past decade or so. You've probably seen him. And uh he wrote this mm -hmm. article, it was really interesting. He said that it'd be more helpful to think about contemporary mindfulness as being more loosely inspired by Buddhism rather than a straightforward secularized derivative of Buddhism. And I think that's well, so really me, helpful. Let me ask you there. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just jump in there then because I think I want to reframe the question a little bit. It seems like um, rather than, you know, what what is mindfulness? How would you like mindfulness to be defined, right? Because he's saying there, I think that mindfulness should be defined in a certain kind of way. What do you what do you feel like would be a good way, a good thing for to come to people's minds when they hear the the term mindfulness? Well, you know, I think that depends on one's motivation and one's interest, um, and mm -hmm. uh, what your purpose, why you're uh, seeking out. Uh, if you're seeking out mindfulness for clinical or therapeutic reasons, then. I think it would be defined the way it is now, is paying attention to the present moment, purposefully paying attention to the present moment uh, non-judgmentally. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the operational definition of, of mindfulness-based stress reduction. So if you're coming at it for therapeutic relief, then that, that definition is probably uh, quite resonant with what you need. Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're coming at mindfulness for, uh, something different, then you probably have to turn to, uh, other sources than the clinical sources. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure what <laughs> it should be. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a lot of sort of movement going on now and in, 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 kind of rethinking and you know is mindfulness only a palliative is it only a clinical technique for stress relief or can it also kind of serve other interest other than therapeutic interest or or commercial interest and that's maybe we'll get to that later on uh I yeah definitely you, and it's yeah. something we've talked about on the show before um mm -hmm. where it, it feels like there's a tension between the potential value of these traditions as self-care and the potential value of these traditions as transformative philosophical traditions that bring about substantial transformative change. And that there might be challenges or that, that, that sometimes one of those things may be sacrificed for the sake of the other. Um, so I do appreciate you, you know, highlighting initially that, um, you know, the, what, what we call mindfulness depends on what we're trying to get out of mindfulness. I think that's definitely true. Um, so 
with that being said, there could be a couple of different reasons to get into mindfulness. Do you generally agree at least that mindfulness is a good thing if it's done right? Right. There are, obviously we're going to talk about ways in which right. it can be done poorly, but like in its idealized form or in a, in a better functional form. It, I you think, think so. That it's something that's a part, a good part of people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think overall, um, I think where we, where I take issue is when, um, people see mindfulness as, just a self-evident good. Uh, and that's why I think it, the mindfulness movements become so uh, messianic and um, mm-hmm. evangelical is that, you know, I think when you say mindfulness is a good thing, that's fine. But when you say it's good f- for everything and for everyone, <laughs> I think you're, 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 uh, you're taking an ideological stance by making that statement. Certainly to science, even as suspect as the science is on mindfulness, does not bear that out. Uh, Because it's Mm -hmm. not good for everybody, as we know that the adverse effects, uh, the research on the adverse effects of meditation and mindfulness are show that uh, some people are, uh, it's contraindicated for some people. Oh, interesting. In in what sense? Well, Willoughby Britton, who's over at Brown, she's probably on the leading edge of this research uh, she did a very uh, in-depth uh, qualitative study, actually. Well, some people that take up mindfulness, have uh, it increases their anxiety and panic and sense. There's all sorts of adverse effects like dissociation, disassociation, mm-hmm. uh, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, feeling of, uh, uh, of of one's desires sort of uh, are uh, – uh, one loses uh, affect, one's affect becomes flatter. Which is understandable given some of the right. – like- the ways that a lot of these traditions do sort of suggest a kind of non-attachment to your desires and affectations. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a free-floating way of looking at Mm -hmm. one's emotions. It's sort of uh, decontextualized, uh, desocialized, too. But yeah, I mean, mean, it is a good thing, probably a good thing. Um, But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when it's it's touted as a a panacea or... Uh, a cure-all, then uh, mm-hmm. that's problematic um, from that point of view. But there's no doubt that uh, therapeutic mindfulness programs have offered thousands of people uh, modest benefits, right, in stress reduction and reducing anxiety, improving mental health. Uh, you know, and those are beneficial. Uh, I don't think anyone would be against people get, feeling uh, less suffering. I mean, I think that there's common ground there. Um but I think where we mm-hmm. run into trouble yeah. is, uh, you know, how mindfulness, how it's framed, how it's uh, situated, how it's taught, um, how it's redeployed, how it's repurposed uh, in different settings. And I think that's really more uh, where my critique is uh, more concerned about those sorts of questions. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to get to that critique. I just wanted to contextualize it in the sure. in the framework of like the direct questions because you are folks might not know a zen dharma buddhist you are practicing uh buddhist as far as i as i understand right is that still the case um yeah and, yeah, and so uh, i wanted to I'm, sort of like point out to people that you you have a background in this 
in these practices and i think that you come at them from seeing that like there are you you, you would say that there are good and bad versions of them which is important i think for understanding so we're going to want to try to distinguish between sort of better and worse approaches to these so i mean what what is your practice like as a, a if you are still a zen dharma buddhist at this point and what does that sort of entail for you or what do you what, do you, what value do you personally find in your mindfulness practice well that's a bit of a complicated question i'm I'm more, okay. um, I don't know what the word is. I'm more eclectic than just Zen. Uh, Zen has been part of my practice. Uh, but I, I see my practice as much broader than that, uh, not kind of glued to any one particular method. Uh, it's more of an overarching, uh, you could say, form of creative inquiry. That's the way I like to look at it now. Uh, and... Mm. Uh, and so I'm not really trying to uh, uh, put forward any particular uh, single practice. I know I think that's sometimes seen as a single practice tradition, where this is one one main practice, and that practice represents the entire uh, method or mm-hmm. the, the entire path. And um, so I'm not, I'm I'm much more eclectic than that, and and I'm even more secular than than. Uh, because uh-huh. I'm, I, I follow a teaching that's very unusual and not very well known, and uh, it's uh, it's it was put forward by a Tibetan uh, Buddhist Lama uh, from Tibet uh, who lives in, in Northern California, uh, and he has a, a set of teachings and books and, and uh, that uh, is quite extensive and. Terms of there, there were probably at least ooh, at least fifteen different books. With uh, by now, probably oh, I don't know. Probably I'm just guessing. Probably three hundred different meditative exercises and practices within within this set of corpus of teachings. So you could see why I'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a long answer to the question. Um, but it is uh, an approach that. Um, Really questions just the whole nature of, of what it means to be a human being embodied in, in space and living in time and using our capacities for knowing. And those three dimensions, space, time, and knowledge, are almost like fundamental facets of human experience, which uh, are not fixed. Uh, they're not necessarily uh, operate the, uh, in a single fixed uh, manner. And so the my my practice is more about challenging these fundamental dimensions of experience and seeing just how far they can be opened up uh, to cultivate uh, a sense of human freedom. Uh, Interesting. And, yeah. Can you can you mention what other um, some of the other traditions that you feel like you draw on in your practice? Well, this this is one. I wouldn't. It's not really a tradition. Uh, it's it, the teaching itself is called time, space, and knowledge. It's uh, the fundamental text is time, space, and knowledge: a new vision of reality by by Tarthang Tuku, and he has a series of other books that sort of build on that root text. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, over the years, I've I've drawn on other uh, various teachings and traditions and. Uh, I'm fairly strongly more related to the Nyingma Tibetan tradition, uh, probably if I had to mm-hmm. put my finger on it. Um, I, I, uh, that's kind which, of where I've, I've hung out of, the most. 
for folks who might not be familiar with the different sort of subsects, how how does that Nyingma distinguish itself from other Buddhist sects? Well, the the Nyingma means the old school or the elders. It's one of the older schools in in Tibetan Buddhism. There are four main schools and many other spinoffs, but uh, it's uh, it's a practice tradition. It's kind of heavily practiced uh, based on a practice tradition. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's I would say that's where I've hung out the most over the years. Although I've been um, involved in various Zen Zen centers as well, uh, off and uh-huh. on. Um, uh, that's where I'm at so, now. So, yeah. So then, how would you say you distinguish those experiences, those traditions, from what you call in the book mindfulness? What would you say are like the key? features right. or things that are important in, in making this distinction? Well, McMindfulness is a is a term that was coined by actually Miles Neal, who is a, mm-hmm. a psychotherapist and Buddhist teacher in New York. Um, I heard the term, oh, I think around 2012, and uh, it kind of stuck in my head. It, it, so I, I, McMindfulness can, it has a couple different layers. Uh, one is the decoupling from any kind of moral or ethical context and then the commodification uh, of uh, of these practice into a set of instrumental techniques um, mm-hmm. which these practices can actually be used for uh, more self-serving and ego enhancing purposes which is kind of counter or orthogonal to the original intention of these to be transcending the ego and and seeing into the the illusory illusory nature of, of, of an independently existing self. Right. Uh, so, How do you see them used to enhance the ego instead? How do I see them how they, they, in, to enhance the ego? Yeah, can you just give like an example of like someone using these kind of things to enhance their ego? Well, you you know, you've, you've probably seen these headlines and, you know, Bloomberg ran a, uh, a big uh, uh, article about, you know, about uh, if you want to make a killing on Wall Street, you meditate, you know. Uh, hedge fund mm-hmm. managers using it to get a mental edge, you know, almost like mm-hmm. uh, like being uh, ninja warriors, you know, on Wall Street. The, right. the There's a whole character uh, about this in Silicon Valley over on HBO. Okay, and 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 uh, also, you know, um, you know, you 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 know, it's 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 marketed as a, a way to enhance your career success and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so that's one dimension of it. Um, the other uh, dimension of the mindfulness is that it presents stress as something that's privatized. Uh, uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, these ap- ap- these applications, mindfulness applications. They emphasize uh, self regulation. They place the burden uh, on individuals to accommodate and adapt to the status quo. So this is a kind of a highly privatized individualistic spirituality, um, mm-hmm. and the focus on self-regulation and the way that it's deployed uh, turns into kind of a, a form of uh, self-discipline, uh, mm-hmm. where it could be used as a, a form of social control. But I think also the the, the wider critique is that uh, you know I, I see McMindfulness and these forms of McMindfulness, especially as they hear, adhere to the rhetoric uh, of a privatized view of stress. You hear it from some of the leaders; they say, "Okay, you know, we're suffering from a thinking disease." 
you know, our problem with our, our cultural malaise is that we, you know, we're just not mindful enough. We're suffering from a thinking disease caught in our mm-hmm. ruminations. And so that stress is all inside our own heads. That's sort of the, the rhetoric that kind of is uh, driving a lot of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the touting of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And it's, I am it, genuinely suffering from a thinking disease, but I also get what you're yeah, saying. I do agree um, that like, there's a way in which we, we it, it turns into a kind of neoplatonic slave cult kind of mentality, right? Where um, the individual just corrects for whatever stress they're dealing with um, internally rather than trying to address systemic problems in some way. Yeah, and and you know it's a 1.5 billion dollar industry right now that is uh, it's tracked to to be a two point something billion dollar industry in a couple more years. So it's a growth industry. It's selling us back these individualistic commodified cures, basically to to this to de stress. But uh, and that's mm-hmm. why I call it the uh, the latest uh, capitalist spirituality in a way. As it's perfectly yeah, also, yeah. Go ahead. I sometimes see it associated with neoliberalism. I'm curious what you think about that kind of connection as well, or if that's just another way of saying that it's it's associated with systems that involve the extraction of labor and the sort of the maintaining of a, a stable but sort of unegalitarian status quo. Yeah, I could say a lot about the neoliberal side of it. Um, I, uh-huh. I think that's really probably the heart of the critique. Uh, is more of a critique of uh, how mindfulness is self-help. Uh, it it fails because the stresses that, as you say, are putting our lives in jeopardy in the first place. They remain in the world around us even after we've taken the cure of of mindfulness. So you know, the mindfulness movement adheres to the ideology that it is the individual who needs to learn to adapt to our social, political, economic conditions. Uh, and, and in that respect, there's little attention that's being paid to the importance of collective action or, or community formation. Uh, mm-hmm. The trope that we hear all the time among mindfulness teachers is that the only real change comes from within. So the burden mm-hmm. of change then is placed squarely on the individual, and that's exactly where neoliberalism would would like to uh, have us uh, uh, stay put, is in our interiors. Uh so it's you know it's portrayed in the media and it's understood as this individualizing activity, uh, and, and in that respect, I think it can be uh, uh, producing the ideal neoliberal subject, and that's in that sense that um, mm-hmm. you know the mandate is individuals have to self-regulate by taking full responsibility for their own self-care, especially if you're going to be employable and thrive. Yeah. In a precarious economy, um, so it's this whole kind of uh, neoliberal turn, you know, this turning inward to some private, interior, inner subjectivity that's carried out in isolation uh, from the wider social political context. Um, yeah, and I, I, this is a similar concern that I have with stoicism. I don't know if you yeah. feel like these things are connected. It's, it feels to me that like. That in a sense, you know, not all, but a, a fair bit of the stoicism that you see out there, especially in the business realm, is just sort of a sub-branch of mindfulness oriented towards a certain 
often predominantly, I think, male demographic. What do you feel? Is that how you've seen things play out uh, on your end? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's, you know, this is just under under the, the bigger umbrella of neoliberal individualizing self-help techniques. Uh, mindfulness is just one of them. You know, there's the positive psychology uh, movement mm-hmm. that is uh, focused on resilience, and now we hear the word grit. Got to have enough Cognitive grit. Behavioral therapy stuff. Uh, yeah, and and you know, the happiness uh, industry, the focus on mm-hmm. happiness and all these stupid happiness happiness formulas that are out there. Um, it's all under the same umbrella uh, of uh, what with what Michel Foucault. Uh, would call governmentality. Uh, mm-hmm. In other words, that uh, you know, it's a way of linking micro relations of power, power to our processes of uh, subjectification, and so you know, we're really you know be- we're becoming more self-governorable. It's a hard word to pronounce, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but it's a it's a form of dissonant, disciplinary power. That's productive. It operates through our subjectivity, but through it in a way that constitutes us as supposedly these free enterprising individuals, right? Who can self-regulate, who we can, we can govern ourselves. Um, and uh, that's why it's so insidious. And uh, on the surface, it looks very benign, but it is an ideology of autonomy, of kind of radical uh, autonomy, mm-hmm. uh, which... Do you have thoughts on how, how to shift this? Like... Is there a way to shift the community that that is teaching this material? Do you mm-hmm. think that there should be different regulations? Do you feel like, you know, if you had a if you had a way to um, intercede on some substantial level, how would you correct? I mean, because I've, I've seen a couple of different, actually a bunch of different podcasts recently talking about like sort of mind the mindfulness capitalist um, overtake, and I just like is this something that that should be. Um, regulated more heavily, or what? What do you think is the way to go about addressing these kinds of concerns? Well, I think the first is to call it out, uh, mm-hmm. to recognize it, and to articulate to articulate what's going on. And I think that's the first step, and that's what I've tried to do. And I I do think that on the fringes there are uh, movements afoot uh, where people are experimenting uh, with with different pedagogies. Uh, in terms of, of how mindfulness is framed, how it's uh, uh, defined, how it's put into use. It's, uh, there's a recent article by uh, Paula Haddock, for example, in the United Kingdom uh, on the blog uh, Transformation, part of Open Democracy. It was actually a series of articles that I began with, uh, a couple of articles that I wrote, and uh there's a, a network in the United Kingdom called the, the Mindfulness for Social Change Network. And they uh, published a few articles uh, in this series, too, kind of articulating this alternative uh, social or civic forms of mindfulness that they're experimenting with. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that uh, it, it can be reoriented for socially engaged uh, purposes, focusing on social justice. But that requires a whole new kind of reframing and a whole new kind of set of assumptions. What, what do you feel like has to change in particular there? Like, what's the, what's the big shift? Well, how do we sever its ties to commodification? That may be almost mm-hmm. impossible in some respects. But I, I think the new praxis is really 
redefining what we think of as suffering or stress. I, I think that's probably the starting point. Uh, because the dominant narrative of stress has been a privatized narrative that uh, we've bought into this kind of biological reductionist understanding of stress, which is not the whole story. It's only one explanatory narrative. Stress is also uh, political. It's tied mm -hmm. to what's going on in our lives, in our social, in our workplace, in our communities, in uh, whether we have health care. There's all kinds of social structure, social and structural and systemic factors that uh, where stress should could be reframed to be seen as a public health issue, not just a, a problem of individual biological maladaptation to the environment. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that's one starting point for a new kind of narrative to emerge is the, and, and you know, Buddhism has the same problem. Um, if we look at, you know, I will say this in quotes, traditional Buddhism, whatever that means, you know, uh, they, they see the sources of suffering as, as uh, internal to one's individual mind stream. Uh, the kleshas, of course, the emotional kleshas, the mental, emotional afflictions, uh, greed, ill will, anger, and delusion. They, those have been kind of located within an in, in individual's uh, mind stream. And, um, you know, that's problematic too, in a way. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, mm -hmm. I think modern contemporary commodified mindfulness and Buddhism and Western Buddhism are, are both kind of um, limited uh, by um, staying within the boundaries of this sort of individual way of, of looking at suffering. Um, yeah, it makes me think of um, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, for example, where he talks about social, um, you know, uh, protests and things like that. The purpose being to give to allow for the building up of social stress, in a sense, that leads to actual change. So I think, yeah, you know, he had a sense there of that, like that's that that public kind of um, stress that hangs on everyone. Yeah, yeah, and. Um liberation theology um mm -hmm. you know they talk about social sin uh you know sin is not just uh, an individual uh kind of violation but it's uh it's a uh, it's systemic it's there's uh, so you know i think we can learn from these other traditions and i'm just starting to try to read and, and listen as to many as as many audible books as i can right now on mm -hmm. liberation theologists, theologies. Um, so I think I think that's one aspect is uh, kind of moving to a more critical reflection of the causes of our uh, social suffering or social dukkha, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. And you know, so if we if we move towards more socially engaged narratives, then we have to kind of move away from uh, the biological or side discourses. Which have mm -hmm. historically have pathologized stress, and and uh, tried to even suppress dissent and collective action. So, uh, you know, if we're ha if we're going to move towards a more social critical mindfulness, then we need more critical critical pedagogies that reorient these practices towards examining the causes and conditions of so social suffering and oppression. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I want to dive into that more. Though I do think it might be good to at this point just mention the flip side of this. Do you, you wouldn't, I think, 
like let me ask you, let me let me ask it this way, right? Um, is it okay if I want to do mindfulness just for some stress relief and to be able to focus better at my job? Like, is there anything like morally obligatory that says that I have to go above and beyond and like do the more socially engaged kind of mindfulness that you're talking about, or is it okay for me to just? you know, wanted as an alternative to caffeine or something like that. No, I mean, it, people are free to choose whatever they want to do. But yeah, I don't think there's mm-hmm. any particular harm or sort of sort of moral obligation to to say, oh, no, you only have to to move towards socially engaged mindfulness. Or You don't think we all have to get on the bodhisattva path together? I don't believe so. But, you know, this is a question <laughs> I often get asked is, you know, what's the harm, right? What's the harm if mindfulness provides you know, individualistic, modest benefits. Uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. well, you know, I, I, it depends on what our focal setting is for that question. And um, I came across something recently by Jacques, Jacques Derrida. And uh, he said something like, when the poison is in the cure, the harm is very hard to see. And so I kind of I look at it that way, that despite the potential health benefits, uh, when mindfulness practices are co-opted and instrumentalized uh, for furthering the goals of a neoliberal agenda, then I think there are harms, but those harms mm-hmm. might, might be more macro in nature. Uh, or they may mm-hmm. be more uh, cumulative over time. They may not be immediate harms that people experience. So I, I, would, I would respond by saying there isn't anything inherently wrong with using these techniques to de-stress the problem isn't that mindfulness, that it doesn't work. Problem is it, it does work, but mm-hmm. for whom and for whose interest? And, uh, right. you know, the analogy I like to use is that uh, there's nothing wrong with treating depression. The issue is if we buy into the idea that depression is strictly a, a private disease of an Im- chemical imbalance in our brain, then we've also stripped away of uh, we stripped away of, of looking at depression uh, as being situated within people's context, right? And that's mm-hmm. where market interests come into play because the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry surely has a vested interest in preserving that sort of worldview that medicalizes depression to such an extent that we're not even allowed to question that the environmental factors that may be uh, part of the the whole. Uh, Ideology of depression. It's it's, it's multi-causal. Uh, it's not uh, reductionistic. So I, I think the problem is yeah, it is hard to strike that holistic balance. Yeah. It seems so like I don't think the moment. problem is that, that the problem is not that people are getting individualistic benefits. It's that it's at the ideological level, just mm-hmm. maintaining a very narrow way of framing human distress. Um, so let's maybe like um, take this back down to earth and make it a little more concrete for folks and talk about one of the particular practices that, um, you know, I personally find valuable and that I think comes up in a lot of these traditions, which is um, active listening. Oh, active listening. You talked mm-hmm. about that some in your material, right? So do you want to maybe first just like explain to folks how you understand active listening and how you see it both used and misused? Well, I I don't know how it connects to my. I haven't seen it used with mindfulness per se, but um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's actually quite a history of active listening. Um, if you don't mind, I you know, there's you know, I could take it all the way back even to the human relations movement, 
uh, in the ni- mm-hmm. late 1920s, uh, 1930s, um, there was a, a, a factory on the west side of Chicago owned by Western Electric, and they were um, actually doing a lot of um, research on productivity. Uh, and there was a researcher from Harvard who came in. His name was Elton Mayo. Now, in this particular experiment, um, over a three-year period, there was this massive interviewing program uh, at the Hawthorne plant on the west side of Chicago. Over a three-year period, they trained like 300 people to interview all 21,000 employees uh, in this particular factory. Uh, and they used active listening techniques that, you know, they really kind of t- tried to tune into what people were feeling, what their complaints were, uh, really kind of trying to use active listening as this kind of therapeutic device uh, mm-hmm. to help each individual employee to gain insight into their uh, personal situation. Um And it also tried to uh, portray that management really cared about them by asking them their opinions and concerns, right? So as a result of this interviewing program, employees began to talk about how the conditions in the plant were improving, even though actually nothing really changed. Uh, The interviewers had absolutely no power to change anything uh, that uh, the problematic conditions that some of these employees had identified. Uh, and so, you know, this is a way that they began to train supervisors in active listening to sound like a humane, uh, caring supervisor. Uh, and it was all used uh, in a way because they found that people actually felt better uh, as a result of this. So I don't know if that's one example, but, you know, I, uh, mm-hmm. Carl Rogers, uh, I think Carl Rogers, uh, his uh, – uh, form of counseling was all based on active listening. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I, I could see how it could be abused just like anything else. What, what was your mm-hmm. take on it? Well, yeah, so I'd, I'd seen it as one of the things that was, um, that was mentioned in some of your materials about your, your book. But yeah, I, I mean, to me, the connection to mindfulness would be that part of the purpose, like, I mean, I think there's a, there's a sense in which part of doing mindfulness well is being an active listener as much as you can be genuinely in your life, trying to um, hear people where they're coming from rather than where you're coming from, um, trying to make more space for other people to I- express what they're thinking earnestly rather than funneling their reactions into the framework that you want them to be in. Um, obviously, though, of course, it can go awry in various kinds of ways, and that was that's sort of the the reoccurring theme here. It seems like, but you know, I think that like what can be a condescending or sort of band-aid technique in a harmful environment is to me a really essential technique in a healthy environment. So like if we had a a healthy business, I wouldn't want that to mean that the managers stopped actively listening. I just want them to mean that they were doing it in a genuine rather than disingenuous way. Would that, do you agree with that? Oh yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's, you know, I think it's pretty obvious when we, uh, when it's being used, in a manip- manipulative way, um, mm-hmm. and it becomes very manipulative. 
do you, do you feel like there are folks out there who are doing sort of better work in these kinds of things? Um, I was doing a little bit of looking around at some of the the groups that that manage these kinds of activities, and um, mindfulness at work came up was was one as a potential option. But I was curious if there's any folks that like. Uh, you know, if someone runs a business, for example, and they want to do mindfulness work with their people, are there there better groups that you would recommend? Oh, well, I'm not really uh, in that world, so I don't know if I can make mm-hmm. referrals or not. Um, uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'd already mentioned the Mindfulness and Social Change Network, uh, which is really mm-hmm. a good place to start. You know, people can Google that. It's kind of a loose network, and uh, I, I, that's where I see most of the uh, innovative work being done right now. You know, the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland is doing lots of sort of transformative action, you know, social social engagement and transformative action uh, programs uh, that are being taught, try to foster, you know, inner and outer change. Mm-hmm. There's also, yeah, there's also people like... Well, there's the uh, Urban Mindfulness Foundation also uh, in London that's doing work mm-hmm. on um, inclusivity trainings. Uh, the, the, the project, uh, I think there's a project called Thinking Diversity, Thinking Diversity Radically, mm-hmm. which is incorporating uh, contemplative practice into deconditioning oppression um, from... Uh, Rhonda McGee's doing some work. What she Rhonda McGee's here in San Francisco. He's mm-hmm. a law professor, and she has an approach she calls color insight, which uses mindfulness to try to look at racial bias and um, uh, internalized oppression. Mm-hmm. So you know there are. So you generally think it's it's positive to associate these sorts of things more with I guess what some folks would think of as like the the SJW intersectional kind of um social justice because like there's different there's different worlds within social justice there are folks who like think you should focus on class all of the time Uh there are folks like who think that you should focus on intersectional critical race theory or something and like i'm just curious if you feel like oh i'm not one of those approaches better fits with um these kinds of practices i i think anything that gets gets us off the privatized individualistic uh, obsession mm-hmm. is a good thing, mm-hmm. and um, but I think there's other approaches. For example, you know, there's people that are trying to see how mindfulness can be facilitative of sustainability. Uh, you know, a sustainable, a sus- more sustainable mindset, and how contemplative practice might, what role they might play, right, in pr- promoting that kind of cultural shift. Um, but I, I think these are all kind of under the same umbrella of socially engaged. Uh, mm-hmm. for for social action. Uh, and, you know, I think we're just, for too long, we've, we've been um, caught in this kind of therapeutic uh, ethos of uh, that all change comes from just focusing on our interior worlds. And I think, you know, the major, uh, I think the major break from that is, is to, uh, say no. Look, that's playing into the neoliberal playbook by you know mm-hmm. staying within that sort of individualistic, uh, reductionistic way of of, of framing um, these 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 uh, methodologies. Well, that that would be my main um, my main concern. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. How optimistic are you about that change 
coming coming around do you feel like well we are moving towards this or moving away from it's hard to say uh you know given that the industry is going to be at two billion probably not probably a very small minority uh of Mm -hmm. of uh people on uh on the fringes doing this but on the other hand there's tremendous amount of critiques that have been coming out um not just on mindfulness but on on the happiness industry there's a new book out now by uh uh, I really like her. Her name is uh, Eva uh, Eva Aluz, and she has a new book out uh, called Manufacturing Happy Citizens, uh, How the Science and Industry of Happiness Control Our Lives. But they're, they're very similar. All these critiques are, are very similar in uh, making the same point that I'm making. And there's, uh, there's research on resilience, for example, mm-hmm. which is not about... Uh, you know, looking inward to one's inner resources, but really cultivating uh, one's external resources in the community um, mm-hmm. and and collective resources. Um, there's a, a researcher, Michael Unger, who runs a uh, really interesting center on resilience, and and um, and he uh, really says everything everything about positive psychology you've heard about resilience is wrong, <laughs> actually. Mm-hmm. And the science on positive psychology is so pathetic and embarrassing um, that, uh, you know, so I think a lot of people are calling out these things. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's going to make a big dent in it or if it's going to help, you know, shift the currents or not. Uh, but who knows? It, it could yeah, do you feel like there's a way to translate that community resilience stuff into sort of um, business frameworks? Um, I, I guess that that involves essentially a shift, maybe from capitalism to a more socialistic kind of model, in order to to make the business a community in that kind of way, perhaps. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that yeah a more radical mindfulness would be not uh conducive or you could say it would not be working uh to to aid and abet corporations in in mm-hmm. profit making uh i think absolutely there, there 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 has to be ways of doing that um organizing around collective resources uh it's not either or it's not just focusing on our internal transformation or external it's both uh but mm-hmm. the pendulum has swung way too far to to the individual and downplayed uh the whole social and communal dimensions um social conditions so do you feel like there do you feel like there might be functional ways that people could push back on this right if i'm you know if my i'm working in a business and that business brings in something that seems like uh make mindfulness is there should i just go along with it or do you feel like there are ways that you could well there's a lot of um, articles now that you could share that mm-hmm. we could call into uh-huh. question corporate mindfulness um so now there's plenty of articles you can put in front of people before mm-hmm. there were hardly any so right. um, i guess it depends on your current business situation as to whether or not it's a good idea to put that in front of the people who are making those kinds of decisions right you know um you know the popularity of corporate mindfulness is huge right now um, you know, and we we should ask why, uh, because it's management who are uh, it's management who buys these programs. 
So it's do, obvious. Do you feel like it's a bubble that could pop, that could pop because I mean, well, yeah, the, the history of things of, that don't function. Well, if you look at if you look Maybe. at the history of management or of organizations, um, they go through phases. They go through fads over time, but they always mm-hmm. morph. They always come back with some other sort of uh, reincarnation. That, uh, but they all sort of come down to finding ways. It's sort of a search for the holy grail of. Uh, how do we, you know, yoke the subjectivity of employees to corporate goals? I mean, that's basically what it's all been about, going back to Frederick Taylor, and and so, uh, you know, you know, by shifting the burden of responsibility of, of reducing stress to individuals, mm-hmm. man, that that that's really beneficial to corporations. Mm-hmm. So that you know, it's corporate mindfulness. It's uh, it's. Uh, you know, these practices are retooled for productivity improvement. You know, outsourcing, offloading the causes of stress to individual employees uh, takes responsibility. Uh, corporations are absolved then of taking responsibility for the very conditions that are generating the need for these interventions. And mm-hmm. you know, so we're uh, we're at a point like with Byung Chul Han. He he talks about this as psychopolitics. Uh, he talks about psychopolitics is where contemporary capitalism now tries to harness the psyche as a productive force. And that's where mindfulness-based interventions come into play, uh, because they promise to optimize uh, employees to make them mentally fit, uh, attentive, resilient, so they could keep functioning. And uh, they accept the system as it is, especially the corporate mindfulness trainers, in other words, they believe they can work within the system to gradually and incrementally change it. So they'll sell it or they'll pitch a program by promising that it will improve productivity and the bottom line, it, that gets them into the system. But mm-hmm. they believe, um, and I've heard this among many of them, they believe they're teaching the Dharma. And they believe that you know they've brought in the Trojan horse of mindfulness and that it's subversive. Uh, so they don't really oppose the system or try to overturn overturn it. They're not confrontational, and they're they're allergic any, to any sort of conflict or challenge to the power elites uh, because they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. For number number but you, one, you don't buy this idea that there's there is some impact at least, or maybe you just think that it's not substantial. Well, there's impacts to... at the individualistic level. But that just mm-hmm. again, that's where I think the harm is in some ways. Because, all right, we've right. you know we've kind of bolstered your employees to put up with the the bullshit in your in your company, and now you know you've gotten the payoff. Mm-hmm. So you know Kevin Healy talks about that as uh, what he calls uh, integrity bubbles. Mm-hmm. You know, mindfulness at an individual level offers small uh, degrees of uh, of relief for a small number of employees but it it does nothing to to actually critically examine uh, how they're mindlessly exporting toxic externalities into the environment and in and social pollution within the company too Right, and that's the part where it seems like this stuff is headed. It's got to be headed for a collapse in the sense that, like, if it's a bandaid over a, a giant flesh wound, that like this is going to just fester, and, and eventually there's going to be more problems than than like any amount of meditation can handle. It seems like. Yeah, I think I just saw it on Twitter what about a week ago or some uh, something about Starbucks. 
offering a, a free meditation app to all their employees as part of their mm-hmm. mental health program. Mm-hmm. And right. they were saying, well, we don't need that. We need higher pay. We need better staffing. We're understaffed. We don't need the a fact that it's app. an app really takes the like quality sci-fi dystopian to a new level, I feel like. Right. They didn't even like couldn't even get you meditation like a membership or something. No. I was gonna get you a computer to tell you to meditate. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's an interesting article too, uh, uh the American Psychological Association, um, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. There was a study done recently. I, I didn't read it really carefully, but it was it was looking at uh it was it was looking at uh they took a sample of Hillary Clinton voters uh I think that was their sample after 2016 election. Um, mm-hmm. And they were looking at they were looking at self-regulation, uh, mindfulness for emotional self, self-regulation. And they said, you know, from in the short term, there were beneficial effects after mm-hmm. they uh, after the subject subjects watched a up, an upsetting political event. But it was costly in the long run because they found that mm-hmm. uh, these people were more prone to. Uh, not engage in political uh, action or civil disobedience or social activism. So this idea, you know, this is something I think that we should be uh, be looking at more closely. Right. There's a cost. Right. Another thing that I want to mention here is that, like, I, I you know, I'm I've been doing mindfulness for a long time because my father and, and mother are into. Um, clinical mindfulness in various kinds of ways and at the same time maybe i was all maybe i was never very good at it let's be honest like maybe i've always been just terrible at all of this stuff but i feel like i'm getting worse and i feel like i'm getting worse because of the sort of stuff that everyone is struggling with like the the phone addiction kind of stuff like you know i just ha- i have a harder time focusing and i you know i don't necessarily have a direct question so much as like i i i am increasingly skeptical and maybe it's just that for me personally i'm increasingly skeptical for myself that these techniques are a functional bulwark of any sort against the current climate mm-hmm. i don't know maybe you maybe you feel like you've had better luck with that and like it's hard because i feel like i need those those technological connections to do work like this that i that it, it's essential to the jobs that i am doing um but i also find that i really struggle to have healthy functional relationships with it sometimes well, yeah, uh, you know, that's why I say that mindfulness kind of suffers from what uh, Lauren Berlant calls cruel optimism. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, we mindfulness makes a lot of promises. It it, it does, and um, you know, when those promises don't don't uh, live out, uh, we blame ourselves in, in a way. Uh, there's mm-hmm. this kind of, uh, I think. Uh, this promise that we can gain, you know, unfettered agency and self mastery and full control, right? And then, uh, you know, once we do that, then our, our lives will just thrive and flourish and miss the vagaries of capitalism, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a promissory optimism, and uh, it's and that's why she she calls it cruel. Optimism is cruel when we invest in these things that. You know, promise transformation, but really they don't deliver uh, to the to the degree that they they uh, they make them out. Mm-hmm. To these good life fantasies, basically conventional good life fantasies. Uh, Would you say you're not very optimistic right now? 
uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, this is how mindfulness also functions as a dis- disimagination machine, as Henry Giraud mm-hmm. would say. That um, we're so focused inwardly that, you know, the individualization of all social phenomena, basically, it, you know, it just sends the, the neoliberal message that we're autonomous, atomized individuals. We're the primary focal point, right, for all change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, what happens is we we run to the trance of a neoliberal trance and stifles critical and radical thinking. It, it's uh, we are we're we're totally uh, admonished. We're always admonished to look inwardly, to, to look to ourselves, to turn inward for our ways to solve our social problems. So it's very pernicious. Mm-hmm. It's a form. It's kind of a pernicious form of uh, a cultural discipline, and uh, right. so we lose more of. The utopian ma- uh, imagination. We lose different ways of, of, of reimagining collective structures, social structures, mm-hmm. and that's that's you know uh, we don't have enough debate or critique, and we're just told the imperative. We're just told to accept things as they are. Is one of the big mm-hmm. mindfulness tropes, you know. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I know we're running a little short on time. Do you have any final thoughts you want to add to that in terms of way, you know, effective and hopefully low-cost ways that individuals can sort of course correct on some of these kinds of things before we get to our lightning round? Probably another time I can maybe talk more about that. Um, but okay. you know, I, I just maybe just to recap, I would say that uh, you know, traditional Buddhism is also guilty. I think I mentioned that earlier. It's been disengaged, you know, it's been focusing on trying to escape this world, get off the wheel of samsara, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the escape to transcendence. And and contemporary modern mindfulness is also uh, suffering from that. But it's about uh, trying to adapt, trying to fit into this, trying to harmonize with capitalism. So they both, you know, they both locate the problem in individuals, they both say it's it's our own individual mind that's the problem, and so uh, they're both disengaged. One rejects the world, and the other embraces it. But neither of them are uh, committed to changing it. And so, um, you know, I think that's the, the new direction we need to move. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's um, let's hop on over to our lightning round then. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but for folks who are not familiar, never heard the show before, uh, I like to end the episodes with a lightning round where we, I'm going to give you a list of things, and you're going to tell me if those things are real or not real. Those are my only two choices. Those are your two choices. You can't hedge. There's no middle ground to be had I can't say neither real or... No, no, you can't do the Buddhist thing. Um, no, and I've had I've had enough Buddhists on this show that I have a specific startup question that I have to ask you first to prime you for this. Uh, do you think that anything is real? Do I think that anything is real? I probably do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you think that some things are real? A, this is an important question because we've gone through this list and gotten a lot of no's. So yeah. okay. Well, I'm a contrary. Okay, with that question in mind. Fine, that's fine. All right, just want to get that get that stake in the ground first. So here we go. Real or not real? The external world. Probably not. Not real. Okay. Colors? No. Phenomenal consciousness? No. Free will? Maybe. Okay. Selves? 
selves. Mm-hmm. Persons. <laughs> I can't say yes and no. No Buddhist stuff, huh? I say no then. <laughs> okay. Genders. No. Mm-hmm. Races. Nope. Species. Nope. Morality. Mm, I'm gonna have to say yes. Oh, I love it. You're so great. You're my favorite. Uh, rights. Yeah, I'm gonna go for rights. <laughs> Leading the witness. It's it's my show. I can lead you wherever I want. Uh, knowledge. Oh, definitely. Okay. Gods. Mm, no. Society. Contrary to Margaret Thatcher, yes. <laughs> uh, numbers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. No, I yeah. Fictional characters. They're real as anybody else. <laughs> oh, good. You're sliding into full realism here. Holes. What kind of holes? You know, like a straw, like a hole in the ground. Uh, holes may be really real. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. There we go. It's very Buddhist of you. Chairs? <laughs> nah. No? Okay. Uh, sandwiches? No. No. Science? Nah, overrated. Nah. <laughs> Natural laws? Nope. Beauty? Yes. Mm, causality? Uh, no. And finally, dharmas? No. Nah, that's early no. Buddhism. Oh, no, okay. All yeah. right. See, Buddhist, that's how you make it interesting, right? <laughs> that's how we have fun here. Yeah. That was good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Do you have anything you need to get off your chest now that you've been through that? Any um, confessions or corrections? No, it was, it was cathartic. Guilt? It was good. Oh, good, good. I'm glad to help release a little bit of your uh, your <laughs> yeah. dharmas from that, a little bit of your dukkha. Um, well, well, thank you so much, Ron, for coming on. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time? Sure. Uh, my website, uh, www.ronperser.com is probably a good place. Great. Wonderful. And the book, once again, is um, McMindfulness. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. I want to give an extra special start to a new voidy year thanks to all our listeners and patrons out there. I feel so lucky every day that I get to do this passion project and share it with y'all, and your support makes it all possible. Uh, We've got several new patrons this month who I wanted to give a shout out to, so thanks to Trilobite Tark, thanks to Jonathan Yance Jones, thanks to Joel Nield. And thanks to Jason Lee Baez, who's going to hopefully be a guest on the show in the near future. Um, Thank you all so much for joining. And um, as always, I want to give very special thanks to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Give me those sweet, sweet utils and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And of course, as always, extra top of the tier thanks to our uh, longest, most long-term biggest supporter, Dave Maslich. I really genuinely do appreciate all y'all. Thank you so, so much. Um, If you'd like to support the show, 
please leave us a five-star rating or review on a podcast app near you. Uh, follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. Um, and if you do notice yourself looking forward to these episodes each week, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. It's just $4 a month and you get our bonus book club content. Um, and most importantly, remember, you are the void and the void is you. The void.